Hello and welcome to Whistle Stop, a podcast of the presidency. I'm John Dickerson of CBS News. Teacher, what cure is there that when given in too large a dose harms the patient? Why every cure? Even water to a parched man? Most especially water, my son. It's called hyponatremia. Then we should conclude that the health of the body is contained in the dosage and not just in the remedy. Is that true? Quite so. And is a healthy political body like a healthy human body? It has been averred as such, yes. Then if a healthy political body is like a healthy human body, any cure must be searched for in the right proportion with balances and checks to keep it from, on the one hand, providing too much cure, also called death, and on the other, too little cure, and therefore endless fodder for cable television pundits. It is quite so. And Master, one last question. Yes. Is mimicking the dialectical method of the Mayudic inquiry pleasing to the ear? Like the hemlock, my child, it can be used to cure or to kill. What does this have to do with the presidency? Well, we'll get to that in a moment, but first, a word from our sponsor. This is the second episode on the Constitutional Convention. Our whistle stop today is June 1st, 1787. It's been seven days since the members of the Constitutional Convention started their work rescuing the young nation from collapse. They met in the State House among the quiet gray walls where the Declaration of Independence had been signed 11 years earlier. It was unseasonably hot. They had started by considering the first points of the Virginia Plan, a scheme authored by James Madison, proposed by the state's governor, Edmund Randolph, and bolstered by the tacit backing of that commonwealth and the nation's greatest statesman and Virginia's best horseman, George Washington. The first issue was the legislature. It would be the people's representative in a national government, unlike the previous system, under the Articles of Confederation, where the legislature made suggestions but did not have supremacy over the connected states. The first step was a big one. By addressing the Virginia plan, even answering its particular points, it committed the body to creating a large-scale republic. But who would lead that republic? That was item seven in the Virginia plan. The first question to be considered under item seven, should the leader be a single person or a committee of executives? James Madison's notes describe initial deliberations that were almost over as soon as they started. Almost. This is Madison's account. The committee of the whole proceeded to resolution seven, Madison noted, that a national executive be instituted to be chosen by the national legislature for the term of blank years, to possess the executive powers of Congress, etc. Mr. Wilson moved that the executive consist of a single person. Mr. Pinckney seconded the motion so as to read that a national executive to consist of a single person be instituted. A considerable pause ensued and the chairman asking if he should put the question. A considerable pause... The members of the convention enjoyed that considerable pause because they already had a single chief executive before them, George Washington. He occupied the dais at the head of the room, sitting on a straight-backed mahogany chair with a small golden sun at its crest pressing at his shoulder blades. As president of the convention, Washington presided over the baize-covered desks, but did not take part in its debates 
His model was powerful, however. Historians speculate that it was Washington's mere presence, that stocky athletic presence, that led to the considerable pause that Madison reports. Though the wise men of the new nation had not yet come up with the shape of the executive office, it was just assumed that Washington would sit in that office's big chair once they came up with it. Given that, the question was settled. Of course, there would be a single executive, a man of virtue like Washington, would not need to be watered down or constrained by co-presidents. Surely he could do the job himself, and to suggest otherwise might be an affront to a man whose position in these deliberations required every man to stand as he walked to take his seat at the head of the room. The vote might have taken place and the issue been settled were it not for Benjamin Franklin. Fragile and aging, he was delivered to the proceedings in a sedan chair, a phone booth-like box with two bowls on the side which allowed it to be carried by you guessed it, chairman. In this case, Franklin had been carried by local prisoners. Accommodations made to bolster his failing health did not need an analog when it came to his mental powers. His mind was still acute, and he interjected during this pregnant pause, though verily he was known to have been the author of pregnancies. And he interjected because Franklin supported a shared presidency or a council. We pick up again the action in Madison's account of this June 1 meeting. Dr. Franklin observed that it was a point of great importance and wished that the gentlemen would deliver their sentiments on it before the question was put. At this point, the dam broke. The men whose tongues had been stopped by their reverence for Washington kicked into high gear and the debate kicked up in earnest for many, many days about the role of the chief executive in the new government. Over the days, the delegates would discuss whether there should be a president and if there was to be one, what form the office would take. How much power would the president have? Would that office be held by one person or several? Who would elect the person or persons? Would they be responsible to the legislature or to the people? What remedies would there be to keep the chief executive in check? Balancing powers? Individual virtue? Removal from office? Among the ailments of the Articles of Confederation was that it did not give concentrated political authority to the national government to act quickly and in a single direction. An executive atop a national government would fix that. An executive would also check the legislature. James Madison had seen firsthand in Virginia how weak governors crafted out of wet tissue paper to avoid despotism in the revolutionary days had been unable to check legislatures. This allowed those legislatures to pass laws supported by majorities at the expense of minorities. But how could they add the right amount of executive power without adding so much that they created a pathway to monarchy and inevitable tyranny? The founders were aiming for a middle ground, as Madison called it. But when it came to finding that sweet grove for the presidency, the final result was tough to locate on a map with your finger. Presidential authority was in some places circumscribed. In others, it was left quite vague. An office formed to anticipate human weakness was nevertheless built in some measure, on the personal virtue of the occupant, a human with weaknesses. So, this carefully balanced system, supported in part by the norms of the age, would survive only if those norms conveyed from age to age in the process of selecting presidents and then in the behavior of the chief executive once he or she took the office. It was a gamble. The framers might have rustled up another system entirely had it not been for the example of George Washington sitting at the front of the room during that hot summer who helped shape their thinking about the office. 
However, his strong example may have blinded those founders to the weaknesses they left embedded in the office. In the end, the extraordinary deliberations would leave some loose nails in the scaffolding of a country that has relied on 18th century prescription to settle governing crises throughout the years. And where those tests to that framework are taking place this week, whenever you happen to be listening to this. Some of the original architects noticed the looseness at the time. Was ever a commission so brief, so general, as this our president, asked William Symes, an anti-federalist member of the Massachusetts Ratifying Convention, which debated the product of the Philadelphia framers after they completed their work in September of 1787. Continued Symes, can we exactly say how far a faithful execution of the laws may extend? Answering that question has occupied great minds, scholars, lawyers, and crooks for 230 years. The men of the 13 states had come to Philadelphia to address a big problem. The American government could not survive simply on the goodwill of the states, but they didn't exactly have a mandate to wield the machete. The Continental Congress had only authorized trims to the Articles of Confederation. James Madison of Virginia, however, had filled his ink pot, clipped his quill pen, and stoked his ambition. In a letter to George Washington written a month before the gathering, he sounds like a man bouncing on his tiptoes. Temporizing applications will dishonor the councils which propose them, Madison wrote, and may foment the internal malignity of the disease at the same time that they produce an ostensible palliation of it. Radical attempts, although unsuccessful, will at least justify the authors of them. Try listening to that on one and a half speed. So what were the radical things that Madison and the others were proposing? Well, first of all, the new Constitution gave Congress supreme power over the states. Congress would be able to veto state laws deemed, quote, contrary to the interest of the federal union. This was the central transfer of power to the new system. As Washington wrote to Lafayette one day after the delegates approved the list of enumerated powers, Washington wrote, Vain is it to look for respect from abroad or tranquility at home till the wisdom and force of the Union can be more concentrated. As several constitutional scholars have pointed out, this veto power over the states was exactly what the colonists had revolted against in the Declaration of Independence. When they listed George III's abuses, his veto of state laws was one of them. Still, the national power was necessary as historian Clinton Rossiter wrote, because it created a, quote, true nation rather than simply, quote, a polite title for a league of petty sovereignties. The the states being the league of petty sovereignties, if that wasn't obvious. The other big idea that they achieved was that people would replace the states as the foundation of the national republic. This was based on the Lockean idea, that would be the idea of John Locke, that the people will not allow a government that takes their own liberty. Under the Articles of Confederation, each state had one vote. The new system would have proportional representation in the House of Representatives. Under the existing Confederacy, Congress represents the states, not the people of the states, said George Mason. Their acts operate on the states, not on the individuals. The case will be changed in the new plan of government. The people will be represented. The authors of radical action in Philadelphia were encouraged to come to these conclusions by rules they created for themselves to govern their debate. They agreed to debate in secret, 
They were so committed to this principle that they nailed the windows shut so that no words could filter out of doors. You can imagine how zesty that made the soup in the room, however. Stand too long in one place in the hot funk might cause mushrooms to grow on you. The secrecy rules meant no one wrote or spoke about what took place in the Pennsylvania State House. This encouraged experimentation and provisional thinking. No one had to fear that posterity would wrinkle its nose and snort if they mused about an idea, but then thought better of it later. Or if they floated a question to prompt conversation that might expose them to ridicule for asking it. No constitution ever would have been adopted by the convention if the debates had been public, said Madison. Amazingly, over four months of deliberations, though there were stark disagreements, no one leaked. There was one incident, though. A copy of the Virginia plan, that opening bid that really set the terms of the debate, a copy of it was found in the State House, left either by a clumsy delegate or one who had more nefarious aims. Washington, president of the convention, who didn't participate in the deliberations, nevertheless spoke at this moment. He delivered a stern rebuke at the gathering's next meeting after the Virginia plan had been found. I am sorry, he said, to find that some member of this body has been so neglectful of the secrets of the convention as to drop in the State House a copy of their proceedings. I must entreat, gentlemen, to be more careful lest our transactions get into the newspapers and disturb the public by premature speculations. Wait, how do we know that Washington said this if there was so much secrecy? Washington himself was so careful about the rules of secrecy, he didn't even record anything that happened in his diary. Also, the closed-circuit televisions were unplugged, and sketch artists were distracted with tourists demanding street portraits of themselves in white powdered wigs. There was no TMZ correspondent listening at the keyhole. Instead, the scribbling was coming from inside the house. Madison took notes. Iron-ass Madison did not miss a single day, nor, as he explained, more than a casual fraction of an hour in any day so that I could not have lost a single speech, unless a very short one. But the 36-year-old future president vowed to keep his notes secret until the last delegate died. As it turned out, he he was the last delegate. He died in 1836 at age 85, and he was the final survivor, and his heirs published his notes, edited and perhaps shined up a bit, to cover his debts. Thomas Jefferson, who was in France at the time of the Constitutional Convention, bristled when he heard about the secrecy rules. In a letter to John Adams, he wrote, I am sorry they began their deliberations by so abominable a precedent as that of tying up the tongues of their members. It was anti-democratic, it must be said, but the cone of silence, they made their cones out of mahogany and burlap back then, the cone of silence did loosen tongues. Keeping things mum also served Madison's larger goal, as Jill Lepore argues in her recent History of America, These Truths. Madison had witnessed the sloppy, swerving result of too much direct democracy in the states. The mob could overtake the rights of the few. A national government would threaten those state arrangements and threaten the believers in this philosophy of a more people-centered government. If those who believed in a looser form of direct democracy got wind of what they were up to in that room in Philadelphia or heard rumors, they might have revolted. Those inside the room who were against the establishment of a national government, who were essentially losing the argument to Madison and his Virginia plan, could have stoked that public revolt by appealing to the public and essentially saying they're trying to railroad you out of your rights in this secret cabal meeting of this tiny little faction of propertied men. 
The benefits of secrecy also allowed the proposals to emerge with the force of unison. If the provisions had been picked apart over the four months in the press, they might have entered the ratifying conventions, which took place after the meeting in Philadelphia, already in tatters. This is why Franklin's final speech at the end of the convention, which we'll get to in our next episode, implored the members to give the plan unanimous support, despite their various qualms with it, to give it the durability as a set of ideas. That durability would have been killed by piecemeal public dribbling out of details in the press while the debates were taking place. The convention also did not record the votes of individual members. This meant members could change their minds. They could also revisit matters previously decided, which allowed delegates to play with ideas and take tentative positions. Today, we know when a lawmaker merely lifts an eyebrow or twitches a tentative finger to point at a notion over the horizon, the hot take jockeys mount them and ride their effigy into the deep shale from which their reputation can rarely struggle back into the sunlight. Members at the convention, though, had to keep being reminded to take advantage of these rules. You remember in our lead how delegates paused after the initial question of the presidency was raised. Immediately after Ben Franklin jump-started the conversation, South Carolina delegate John Rutledge spoke to the crowd to encourage debate. I'm now returning to Madison's account. Mr. Rutledge animadverted, this is a great word you should look up, On the shyness of gentlemen, on this and other subjects, he said it looked as if they supposed themselves precluded by having frankly disclosed their opinions from afterwards changing them, which he did not take to be the case at all. Now, here's a brief aside that Alanis Morissette would call ironic. Rutledge, who made the case for free offerings of opinions, would later fall victim to the hot take jockeys of his own time for expressing his opinion. And isn't it ironic... After the government was formed, Rutledge would become Associate Justice of the Supreme Court. George Washington, then president, appointed him to be Chief Justice. But before the Senate could elevate him to the new post, Rutledge spoke out against the Jay Treaty, an agreement Washington's administration had worked out to settle relations with the British. The Federalists, led by Hamilton, who promoted better ties with Britain, set on Rutledge like a pack of animals that set on things quickly and unrelentingly for his opposition to the Jay Treaty. Hamilton said that Rutledge had spoken out against the Jay Treaty, quote, in a delirium of rage. It was the common theme in Federalist papers attacking Rutledge. One of those, which is to say that he was crazy, one of the papers labeled him as insane. They also suggested Rutledge had personal issues. He had not repaid his debts. The Federalist-controlled Senate then ultimately turned Rutledge down by a vote of 10 to 14, Here's how John Anthony Maltese writes about it in his Supreme Court history. Quote, Name-calling public appeals, charges of personal impropriety, and political retribution meant that to use the name of the most famous court nominee blocked for political reasons, John Rutledge had been borked. So you see, history is fun. Rutledge helps the Constitutional Convention along by encouraging delegates to speak freely. Don't worry, you can change your mind. You won't be branded for life. But then, in public life, several years later, Rutledge uncorks an opinion and it brings him low. So it's not all Twitter's fault. This was happening in the 18th century, too, when Twitter was just a single character. Anyway, back to the rules of the debate at the Constitutional Convention. While they encouraged experimentation, it wasn't always high-minded exchanges of ideas. Madison was rather frank in his letters to Thomas Jefferson describing events in debate. In this passage to Jefferson, he's describing the nature of the debate about the executive. 
The first of these objects, as it respects the executive, was peculiarly embarrassing on the question of whether it should consist of a single person or a plurality of coordinate members, on the mode of appointment, on the duration of the office, on the degree of power, on the re-eligibility, tedious and reiterated discussions took place. This is the 18th century version of a Washington expression, everything has been said, but not everyone has said it. The tedious and reiterated discussions that Madison is likely referring to, or at least one of the leading contenders, there may have been several, was when the New Jersey plan was brought forward by William Patterson of New Jersey and introduced on the 15th of June. Though the body had been yakking about things for 20 days and a lot had seemed settled, Patterson took to the floor and announced that he and some colleagues wanted to throw out the whole kit and caboodle, everything they'd worked on, everything that they'd thought about, and start anew. He then suggested that the group commit themselves in this new endeavor, having canned everything else that they've been up to, they commit themselves to basically amending the articles. He then read word for word the modest instructions that had been the Constitutional Convention's original charge. Under this New Jersey plan, this weak New Jersey plan, the United States would remain a confederation. This basically let's undo everything in the Virginia plan. Madison found the New Jersey plan so tedious because the whole reason we're here, Bill, is that the people can't govern themselves. We've talked a lot about the fear of tyranny, and we'll return to it again for sure. But the more immediate fear these men felt meeting in Philadelphia was that the mob was the problem. What Madison had learned in Virginia as a member of the assembly, according to Edward Larson and Michael Minship, who edited Madison's convention, uh, constitutional convention papers, is that in legislatures, politicians were not selfless patriots. Instead, they were narrow-minded politicians. So there was nothing inherently without evil or sin in state politics. Madison had also made a patient study of the books contained in two trunks sent to him by Thomas Jefferson. His historical studies of Athens and other failed democracies had convinced him that the tendency of federal systems was, quote, rather to anarchy among the members than to tyranny in the head. In the Federalist Papers, Madison wrote, in all very numerous assemblies of whatever characters composed, passion never fails to wrest the scepter from reason. Later, Madison outlined this idea in a letter to Jefferson. In our governments, the real power lies in the majority of the community and in the invasion of private rights is chiefly to be apprehended not from the acts of government contrary to the sense of its constituents, but from acts in which the government is the mere instrument of the major number of the constituents. Wherever there is an interest and power to do wrong, wrong will generally be done and not less readily by a powerful and interested party than by a powerful and interested prince. As Jill Lepore points out in these truths, the word democracy retained a negative connotation in this period. Just as a monarch would become corrupt by putting his will and desire for power over the common good, so too could the people, through a majority faction, take over a legislature. The people being selfish, power-hungry, and just as impulsive for their low aims could stuff the system, even a legislative-based system, full of disease momentum themselves. Benjamin Franklin was on this beam, too. He said, we have been guarding against an evil that old states are the most liable to, excess of power in the rulers. But our present danger seems to be defect of obedience in the subjects. The mob, or factions as Madison called it, had a particular economic impact. 
It could push the legislature to pass laws to print money, to pay back debts, or to grant property, all of which pitted the majority against the minority or the property holders who were in the minority. We can't make this detour here, but there is an important avenue of constitutional scholarship uh, in this neighborhood that's contained in Charles Beard's Economic Interpretation of the Constitution, written in, uh, I think, 1913, that basically argues that the framers were essentially business interests. Yes, they were public-minded, but it wasn't all about the belief of the Benjamin. It was also about the Benjamins. Here's what Beard writes, just to give you a taste of this, because the idea that the mob had an economic impact, the way Madison saw it, which is essentially the mob could get the legislature to print the money, you pay the, use the money to pay back your creditors, but the money is essentially useless because they just printed it. It has no value. Here is the, the kind of economic flip side argument, just a taste of it before we move back to talking about the executive. This is Beard. The movement of the Constitution in the United States was originated and carried through principally by four groups of personality interests, which had been adversely affected under the Articles of Confederation, colon, money, public securities, manufacturers, and trade and shipping. It was the work of a consolidated group whose interests knew no state boundaries and were truly national in scope. So that's the other set of economic interests supporting the views in Philadelphia. So they weren't all entirely about rights and freedom and separation of powers and this is and that's. There were people who had an economic stake in an orderly national system. They, of course, would have argued there's nothing wrong with that. Only until you have an orderly national economic system can you have a prosperity. And we'll let them go off and argue that at the bar later. Our chief danger arises from the democratic parts of our constitutions, said Edmund Randolph of Virginia during the debate over whether the national legislature should be elected by the people or by state legislatures. Roger Sherman, according to Madison, opposed the election by the people because he said people, quote, want information and are constantly liable to be misled. Elbridge Gary jumped right in. Quote, the evils we experience flow from the excesses of democracy. The people do not want virtue, but are the dupes of pretend patriots. They are daily misled into the most baneful measures and opinions by the false reports circulated by designing men, and which no one on the spot can refute. Edmund Randolph continued, to provide a cure for the evils under which the United States labored, that in tracing these evils to their origin, every man had found it in the turbulence and follies of democracy. That some check, therefore, was to be sought against the tendency of our governments. Why so many examples of these founders gathered in Philadelphia talking about the mob? Well, it's worth keeping in mind this idea. When you hear a pundit in our modern world say that a politician is doing something that would seem otherwise crazy in order to play to his or her base. Or a pundit who says it's okay that a politician is doing something insane because it appeals to his or her base. What they are saying is the politician is not acting in the common good, but for other reasons, and that they pay no penalty for doing this because their supporters are okay with it. That's exactly what Madison was worried about. So when you hear a pundit say, well, his base likes it, retrain your ears to hear these words as the framers would, as Madison would on guard for perversions that allow self-gratification, power-seeking, and impulse-feeding, but gussy it all up by saying that the people want it. Madison would think an argument that the base loves it was an argument against what the politician was doing, not support of it. So, as you've retrained your ears, this idea that the base loves it would be, to Madison, like a pundit saying, 
of a person with cirrhosis of the liver waiting for the liquor store to open. His drinking sure does satisfy his addiction to high-proof liquor. Legislators could not withstand popular pressure from factions, which Madison described as, quote, united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. A president serving one term only or selected through some means other than by choice of direct democracy and therefore not beholden to the faction for his future was to Madison and others the key break against momentary passions that might rush into the national legislature, which would have a portion of it that was created by representation of the population. James Caesar writes about this being a part of the framers' intent in his book, Presidential Selection, Theory and Development. Caesar writes, One such attribute of the presidency and a crucial one was the ability of the president to withstand popular pressure when it conflicted with public good. So, spend some time here on fear of the mob because when we think about the creation of the executive, it is not only the energy the executive needs to do X, Y, and Z as they saw it, but also the counterbalancing and I should say also we, d- we think of the executive as being something that needed to be checked, but it was also playing an important checking power. But this should cause you to raise your hand. What does it mean for a president to be guardian of the public good and who determines if that can- skill can be contained in one man? Well, we'll get at this later. Determining whether a president is in sync with the public good is, in- is essentially what elections are about. We determine if the president is in sync Uh, when it comes election time. But the public good is also different than the public mood. Of course, which is the point we just made at some length. Knowing the difference between the public good and the public mood is, of course, our task as reasoned members of the, of, the American scene. The public mood might be against sacrifice needed to balance the budget, but the future population might be sunk if that mood is catered to. So the public good might be to take the sacrifice or engage in the sacrifice necessary. The public mood might not want to see the momentary higher energy costs, as Barack Obama predicted when he ran for office, that he said would be the price of environmental policies that combated global warming. So the public mood might not want to see higher energy prices, but the planet becoming a crispy spinning nugget. But how does the president know how to sublimate his personal impulses and not listen to the crowd when he's in office? Well, the president knows because he is a person of virtue who came up through a system that valued virtue and only promoted people who had the virtue balancing skill or who believed in the institutions at some level that were installed to break the rapacious activity of politicians. But we're kind of getting ahead of ourselves because the next stage in our drama is how the framers came up with this checking function. A president checks the mob, but the president himself must be checked or herself must be checked and kept on the beam. Not to make it a job that simply required virtue, because if the president was a check on the legislature, what were the checks on the president? Who's checking the checker? What should be the institutional and systematic and what should be characterological, which is to say contained in the stuffing the president and his chakras bring to office? To channel collective reason to protect and advance progress, the founders sought a balance between the emotionalism of the mob and the general unruliness of the mob and the liberty-stomping efficiency of the monarch. That meant a government built on conflict, constraint, and compromise, and not merely efficiency. 
Efficiency was actually a concern, as Jeffrey Rosen of the Constitutional Center put it in The Atlantic. The governmental system the founders created was, quote, a series of cooling mechanisms intended to inhibit the formulation of passionate factions to ensure that reasonable majorities would prevail. The point of the system, as Justice Brandeis later observed, was, quote, not to promote efficiency, but to preclude the exercise of arbitrary power. This has led many presidents to complain about how long it takes to be effective and to complain that the public does not understand that they are not magicians. President Truman is one of my favorite speakers on this point. Aside from the impossible administrative burden, a president has to take all sorts of abuse from liars and demagogues, he wrote in a letter to his sister. The people can never understand why the president does not use his supposedly great power to make them behave. Well, all the president is is a glorified public relations man who spends his time flattering, kissing, and kicking people to get them to do what they are supposed to do anyway. That's it for this second part of our, I think it'll be three-part, let's call it three-part, of our three-part episodes on the creation of the presidency at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. We'll have our next episode in a couple of weeks. We would love to hear what you think. Leave us a review on the iTunes store. It helps us spread the word, raises the rankings of the show, which is uh, something we know... uh, Our family monitors as a way of determining whether the host has any real value in the world. It's also uh, tremendously affirming when the um, the reviews come in and they're nice. The Whistle Stop producer is Jocelyn Frank. The managing producer of Slate Podcast is June Thomas. Gabe Roth is the editorial director of audio. Our Whistle Stop Cracker Jack researcher and in-house historian Brian Rosenwald is one of the editors-in-chief of Made by History, a Washington Post history section. Elizabeth Hinson is the master manager of research and patient spirit in the Google document. And thanks to Alan Pang of CBS Radio, who helps make this episode and basically every episode happen on the CBS end. Thanks to all of you out there for listening. I'm John Dickerson of CBS News. I'll be back in a few weeks. Mm-hmm.